uh, foundational components of leadership certainly built on uh, built on the built on those foundations and that training. Many of the things I actually use today, maybe we can get into that in terms of uh, some of the misconceptions around military leadership and uh, how that applies to business. Um, I then I've spent you know probably best part of the last 20, 25 years um, leading various businesses, largely in information, software, and services. So for companies like uh, Reed Elsevier or Relics, is it is now, which is a public. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Mark Dorman. Mark, thanks for making time. Well, thank you, Jess. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So for people that don't know about S3, can you give can you give people a bit of a background? Sure. So we're uh, uh, unique, actually. We're the only global pure play STEM staffing specialist, which is a bit of, bit of a mouthful. But what that essentially means is we focus exclusively on STEM talent. And when we think of STEM, we think of talent in life sciences, technology, and engineering primarily. And we also focus on what we call flexible working. So we do permanent placements, but we also spend a lot of time with independent contractors and also contractors that are our temporary employees working on specialist programs. We're about 3,000 people in 16 countries across the globe. Um, and so we are, you know, uniquely placed in terms of uh, both our global footprint and really focused on that kind of uh, technology, engineering, life science talent around the globe. And you guys are publicly listed, correct? We are. We're listed in uh, on the London Stock Exchange. Great. And did I see revenue revenue numbers like 1.3 billion pounds? Is that about right? Or am I way off on that? No, that's about right. We're about by that, by that size and about... Uh, I call about 300, 320 in our net fees in million pounds. Yeah. So that's what, about uh, 1.6 million US? Yeah, something like that. Billion US? It, yeah. I guess it's a big difference when you switch uh, million and billion there. <laughs> million and billion, yeah. Yeah. It makes, Slight makes a big difference. Slight difference. So, and and can you tell people just, uh, just the 30 second on your background, military and some of the other things you've done? Sure. So, yeah, a Royal Military Academy Sandhurst uh, graduate. So I passed out there uh, back in the uh, back in the eighties, and I was a British Army officer. So, for your audience in the US, I'd be the equivalent of West Point, similar similar kind of background there. Uh, I was four years as a, an Army officer in the Code of Royal Military Police, which was a good time. And my uh, foundational components of leadership certainly built on uh, built on the built on those foundations in that training. Many of the things I actually use today, maybe we can get into that in terms of uh, some of the misconceptions around military leadership and uh, how that applies to business. Um, I then I've spent, you know, probably best part of the last 20, 25 years um, leading various businesses, largely in information, software and services. So for companies like uh, Reed Elsevier or Relics, is it is now, which is a public information uh, company, uh, Gartner, I'm sure uh, many of your listeners would have, would have heard of, uh, Walters Kluwer, which is another big global um, B2B information business. Um, and then right before uh, S3, I spent a few years with uh, McGraw-Hill Education, which was a, a really uh, in- interesting time. And that got me to um, S3, where I am now. I've been CEO 
at S3 for just over 18 months. Okay. Well, let's let's kind of start at the beginning there. Tell us, uh, you know, our listeners have had a, a number of folks with military backgrounds on, and they, they certainly know about our charity, Child Rescue, and, and kind of our respect for, for the military. I, I would love to hear what you feel like some of the misconceptions are and what you feel like some of the biggest takeaways have been for, for your career since then. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it starts the, you know, when you walk through the gates of Santos as a new officer cadet, you get handed this this little red book. It's called um, Serve to Lead. And I think encapsulated in there uh, is a lot of lessons and stories from the military, British military, but a military around the world in terms of, you know, le- lessons about leadership. And it is all about serving to lead in as much as you put the team first. So many people think of the military as this very, you know, hierarchical command and control by its very nature. And certainly there's elements of that in as much as there are rules, there's a chain of command. Uh, But largely it's about, you know, as a leader, your responsibility to the team and the mission. And that's actually served quite well as you focus very much on your talent. If you think about it in a business setting, making sure you've got the right people with the right skills, they all understand, you know, a clarity on what what their mission is to get them heading in the right direction. And that really helps when you're in a very volatile situation, as you can imagine, as you can imagine the military is designed to go into very volatile ballistic um, environments, that each team member doesn't need to have somebody standing over the shoulders to be able to make decisions because they clearly understand what the rules of engagement are, or at least they should do. They understand what the mission is and their part in it to be successful. So, you know, a lot of those, you know, base elements about how do you understand situations, how do you make sure you've got the right people in the right spots, you know, clarity and communication and welfare of of the team. So a lot of components around that is really all about the team and the mission and how do you create um, an environment for success. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine we've had on the show has been a child rescue supporter, was probably in back at the same time as you. Uh, his name's Mark Reading. He was a 22nd Regiment guy over at SAS. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting to me, like, you know, growing up in Western Canada, we only heard like vague stories about IRA stuff and, and you know, some of the crazy stuff that you guys were dealing with when it felt pretty peace, peaceful at home. Can you talk about just maybe a, a bit of the scope of that type of stuff for people who you know, I've only seen it on, on movies or something. Look, it, it was, you know, going from the civil rights movement in, in Northern Ireland in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and uh, early 90s, you know, it, it was, you know, a, a terrorist campaign inside the United Kingdom, in a particular part of it, primarily in Northern Ireland, but it did spill over into terrorist acts on, on the mainland in, in, in the UK. And, you know, the military were involved in really understanding, you know, initially how to control law and order, which didn't work out particularly well. And then moreover, into, you know, trying to engage with the uh, population there to make sure they could work in partnership to to keep safety and security. So it was a pretty, pretty dramatic time um, in the UK and, you know, ultimately getting both sides together to the Good Friday Agreement in the, in the, in the late 90s as a a good outcome for all because the big peace dividend, if you look at the you know, benefits both economically and socially for, for the island of Ireland as well as Northern Ireland, uh, very important. Yeah. You know, we had our consulting, in my consulting life, I had a really interesting client. They produced a documentary called Beyond Right and Wrong 
about some of the reconciliation afterwards. And it was a real insight for me because it was much more of the the human aspect of it instead of just the movie's version, you know? Yep. But so what kind of benefits do you feel like, you know, having that military background and the kind of the mindset of, of keeping your head on straight in intense situations, how's that served you in business? Well, you know, if I think of the uh, you know current environment leading a public company through a global pandemic, it's it's probably it's probably been quite good that you you can uh, keep calm and think about you know what are the things that need to get done in what order and what's important. You know, clarity on communicating to the team and making sure you got the right people in the right spots doing the job. But but it, but it really does come down to that you know those foundational elements of making sure you've got the right talent and the right team around you. And, you know, it's not done. It's a team sport. It's not done as uh, as individuals and that we're more successful together than we are, you know, individually. And so really, really those elements and, and, and keeping clarity on, on what you're going and being comfortable about understanding when things don't work, adjusting and course correcting midstream. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's really important, but making sure everyone understands what their role is to play as you course correct. You know, uh, a question that I have there is, I'm interested in your thoughts, you know, none of us have a crystal ball. And yet those of us who lead an organization, we have a lot of folks, whether it's internal staff or external investors or other people looking to us to say, what's going to happen? And it's like, well, we, we don't have a crystal ball either. And yet they kind of need somebody to like, they need to be able to put their faith that somebody is going to be able to navigate the situation. And I'm interested in how you navigate the like, here's kind of what my feeling is of what's likely to happen, move forward. But yet, like, I don't want to declare this is going to happen because I can't tell the future. How, how do you how do you navigate that? Like, you don't need the you don't know the future, but you also need to install install some confidence in those following you. Well, I think it, it comes down to the clarity of what you're what you're trying to do. So, you know, that's, you know, the, your, your purpose, your, your reason for being, what's the value that you're, you're, you're creating and are you staying true to that strategy? Uh, and so if I think of S3, for example, our purpose is about bringing skilled people together to build the future. And that's really a part of the North Star that really guides us and helps us moving forward. And then you've got your strategy as to, well, how are we actually going to do that? which is, you know, we sit at the center of two long-term secular trends, which is about, you know, the, the increasing importance of STEM talent and how do we play within that, as well as, you know, more and more people um, focusing on flexible working, which has entered the corporate lexicon this year. And we've been talking about it for a while, but that's uh, an important aspect. So then you've got your, your, your strategic direction as to where you're going. And then what, it, what does success look like? And will, what will you know when you get there? And by giving the, here's your North Star, your purpose for us that, that drives us forward. Here's our strategy, our method of operating. So we're focused on STEM talent and flexible working. That then gives you a guidepost for, you know, a group of people to keep focused on moving forward, but enough freedom within that to course correct given the market conditions on the ground, whether that's, you know, market differences in our global market. So the U.S. is very different than Germany. So the teams operate differently given the the market conditions as to what's important in those markets or indeed when roadblocks come up how do you get round it and course correct to still move forward for the higher mission or purpose or strategy but know you're on the, the right path so a little like you know if you think of a sailing analogy 
you know, that's, that's the, that's the end point I'm going to here are the waypoints that I need to course correct to get there, depending on the conditions. So can you give me an example, like at S3, you talked about that North star, what's an example of helping a team member saying like, and if we can do this, this is what success looks like. So if I think of, you know, bringing skilled people together to build the future, you know, just within that, it's a pretty exclusive piece. It's not, we're going to be in all aspects of recruitment. It's very specific to skilled people and it's people with specific types of skills, STEM talent. So within that framework, how do I want to move forward? Now, we also then choose, we're going, we want to be the leader in the number one STEM provider in the markets that we choose to serve. So that then allows you to say, I'm going to be in life sciences within this particular market, and we want to lead within the segments that we have. So we want to be number one or number two. So that then allows us to go, okay, I'm this, this broad target that seems a little amorphous of bringing skilled people to, um, to build a future. But then I've got STEM talent down to life sciences, down to number one within life sciences within a specific segment I'm operating in means that once I choose to move forward into there, the goal is to get to number one within that sub-segment of the market. And so there's clear alignment there across um, the direction. And really what you want to be able to give people is clear enough direction that when nobody's in the room and they have a choice to make, they make the right choice most of the time because there's guidance there, but enough freedom that they can understand from their customer um, uh, how they're going to add value to, uh, add value to them. Um, so we had a great example of, you know, when I when I first started with a strategy session with the team when we could all get in, get into a room uh, a couple of years ago, um, and it was this debate about STEM talent and what was and wasn't STEM talent, and we have the uh, apocryphal, you know, receptionist at a specific tech company. So my 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 customer, I want to be add value to my customer, wants us to not just do their senior front end developers. But, but also place a whole bunch of other staff because they like the job that I'm doing. If we say exclusively, no, we're going to focus and be the experts on STEM talent, and within that aspect, it would be technology talent, then the answer to the customer is no. We wouldn't do a particularly good job. There are other people that would do a better job for you. And the distraction of us working on something we're not particularly good at means that over time, our service to that client would actually degrade. So that would be an example of, you know, taking that, you know, clear line from purpose to strategy to specificity on a particular client to giving some guidance. And actually, tough, some of the toughest decisions you have to make is actually, no, I'm not going to do that for you because I'll not do the best job. Yeah, you know, I think that we have a lot of entrepreneurs listening to the show. I consider myself a lifelong entrepreneur ever since I've been pretending to be in it the, the last couple of decades, right? And uh, it's hard as an entrepreneur, I think, especially is this like, you see money staring you in the face, you know, and it's like, everybody talks a good game about turning it down. But when it really comes to like, oh, no, this feels like free money. And all we have to do is a little bit of scope creep, and we can have it. It's such a temptation. Any Any thoughts for folks who have like, just things you tell yourself to inoculate yourself from the temptation of what feels like easy money? Well, it depends where you are, right? And this is about keeping, you know, what's what's really important. So it may be if you're an entrepreneur and, you know, cash flow is really important and you're struggling, maybe easy money in the very short term is an okay thing to do. But over time, if if you've not got clarity on the value that you're adding, what's your value proposition and are you are you actually staying true to that? 
anything that um, dilutes that slightly, you you run the danger of just being like everyone else, right? So your your value proposition, whatever it happened to be. So for us, we're real experts in specific niches. If we go down some other path, it dilutes that impact to the client because we're not spending as much time staying on top of the, the right talent within that niche and, and not giving it to them. So you don't want to dilute yourself from your, your secret sauce, whatever your secret sauce is, because ultimately, as we head into the fourth industrial revolution, you know, intellectual property and your secret sauce is what's going to differentiate you from someone else. You know, you know, at a certain stage, capital becomes completely fungible. And it's really about what real added value you're going to give to your clients or your customers that comes down to something unique about you. Once you start diverging, you become less unique and less valuable. Um, I'm interested, you know, kind of maybe taking a a little bit of a turn here. When you think about running an organization at the, you know, $10 million, you know, the $10 million revenue level, the $100 million revenue level versus the billion dollar revenue, what are, what are maybe some of the, some of the things you didn't expect, or what do you see as some of the differences when you start adding those zeros? Well, it tends to be the complexity of your stakeholders and your stakeholder groups. And it, 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 that, that's the that complexity of what you're managing is much more challenging than the number of zeros that you're, that you're taking in. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, revenue is not, a, it's not a particularly good measure of complexity of your span of control and what you need to manage. You know, in some instances, it's largely people. And what I, certainly what I found is, you know, from, you know, managing five people to 10 people to 50 people to 100 people to 1,000 people to over 1,000 people, that's where the big step changes. Now, that tends to also follow scale and complexity in the organization, and you've got diff- different demands there. But but once once your leadership style has to adjust that, I don't know everyone's name off by heart, and I can't go and point to the person whose job that is anymore, that's that's you know, one level of complexity. The other piece is your stakeholders tend to change as well. So, you know, when you start off with a small group, you've got a pretty, you know, simple group of stakeholders. You probably know them all by name as well. So you've got your customers, you've got your employee base, you've got, you know, potentially your investors, whoever they, whether they're private or, you know, however you're getting funding, maybe the bank manager that that you happen to know. Maybe some of your family that you, if you've bootstrapped a company, maybe some other investors that you know. The scale of you know new people and trying to get the clarity of message through all of those stakeholder groups, that's that that tends to be the the, the challenge that you're trying to manage. And then, as a leader, your focus becomes how do I manage my time? Where do I add the most amount of value? Because it's not going to be trying to do somebody's job or guiding them in their job. It's giving them the tools for them to be successful. And that becomes more and more important. The, the, the more people, the larger, the more complex the organization becomes is that clarity of direction, giving people the tools of capability for them to be successful becomes a defining factor. What's an example of what that looks like at S3? So I think, you know, I talked about our, our strategy process and, you know, we went through a pretty extensive review of our, our, of our strategy um, last year to really get some real clarity to make it actionable. That this wasn't, you know, strategy in large organizations. People tend to think, well, that's those nice PowerPoint slides that we present once a year and then we put back on the shelf and go and have to redo them somewhere else. 
you know, strategy, I think it's a, a Lou Gershner from IBM quote, is it should be execution on purpose. So actually it's an operational plan where you, you know, what you're doing is you're trying to define specifically what you're going to do. And then, you know, by, by definition, that means what you're not going to do and the not doing stuff, as we just talked about in terms of, you know, know, not, not going after a certain type of business is actually the harder part. And so be really clear about what it is you're going to do, where you're going to focus, turning that into an operational plan. And then where the rubber really meets the road for most organizations is resource allocation which people are going to work on which things and where you're going to fund them with, you know, capital allocation and how are you going to measure success moving forward and connecting those two parts together becomes a really critical component in any organization. And you try and do the best you you can to, to really drive that into the organization. So everyone has a clear idea of this is where we're going. This is why we're going there. And so now I understand my job today and the impact it has on that strategy. That's great. Well, I know we're kind of uh, winding down for part one of the interview here. Maybe a final question is, if you could go back and give a younger version of yourself some advice to achieve what you've achieved faster, what do you, what do you think it would be? What would it be? Probably patience. You know, like like many people in my position, pretty impatient as a, as a as a, as a younger version of me. And, and there's a lot to be said about going slow to go fast in terms of trying to plow ahead too, too far by you know, just taking a few steps back and actually doing some of the, uh, some of the planning work up front. With the, I wouldn't have had to learn quite as many lessons by getting it wrong. Yeah, so tell me a bit more about that. Was it just excited and ambition and hard charging? And if you would have like, kind of like that cliche of like, don't just act, think, or, or what, what, what did it look like for you? So for me, it was twofold. It would certainly be, you know, think before acting. Right. And so you could do it, number one. And, and number two is, you know, trust the team. Right. You know, even you can't do everything. So you got to trust the team to, to bring them along. And that's largely around the thinking part and the communicating effectively. So they see the same things you see and trusting them to do it versus char- charging ahead regardless is, uh, is, is, a, is a good lesson. Uh, solid advice. Okay, everybody, please tune in for for part two here with Mark. Thanks for listening.